Well, oddly enough, we, uh, we're starting the book of Judges tonight. And oddly enough, we are not going to, our passage we're going to read is not in the book of Judges, although we will be going back to the book of Judges. Uh, our book, uh, our reading is going to come from the book of Hebrews. So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11, uh, and we're going to look at verses 32 through 40. I'm going to bring the text up on the screen. As soon as my system gets working here. There we are. All right. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 40. Hear the word of the Lord. And what more shall I say? Now, this is the chapter that we like to call the, the, the chapter of faith, the hall of faith. See, it's got all these said, talking about Abraham and Moses. So this is later on the chapter, and this is where the author of Hebrews says. Uh, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And, and, uh, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So in the post-Civil War era, uh, around 1900, there was this kind of undeniable sense of progress because of advances in medicine and technology that just almost seemed to be coming out every day. Just incredible things that we had not uh, realized. I mean, it's amazing if you go look back even just 100 years or just over 100 years ago, and the amount of technology that we have shifted from in that time period is just mind-boggling to consider. And, uh, and so, and, you know, it, it, it just seemed with the advances of technology, um, advances of transportation and medicine, uh, it just seemed like things were going to get better and better and better. And then... The war to end all wars happened. Twice. And suddenly we realized that perhaps, while certain things may be improving, not everything was getting better, like human nature. Even today, how can it be that we have this level of technology, medicine, access to food, yet we are plagued by violence, hatred, and even an incoherence of what a basic humanity is. Well, herein lies the story of the book of Judges. The pastor scholar Delroth Davis wrote in his commentary that this book, this book of Judges, is so earthy, so puzzling, so primitive, so violent, in a word so strange that the church can scarcely stomach it. 
we may be tempted to run, he says, over to one of Paul's letters in the New Testament until the book of Judges goes away. But the book of Judges cannot be ignored. If for no other reason, it's one of the most interesting, even if it is one of the most disturbing books in the Old Testament. Uh, But it's also a part of the larger story of what God is working out in history. And even more, I would submit to you that this book is ultimately about hope and redemption, even, even as much as it is about sin and disobedience. So tonight we're going to consider the entire book of Judges, which comes to us in a very simple structure. The book of Judges has actually not one, but two introductions in the first two chapters or so, followed by the exploits of this group of people called the Judges. And then, just as it has a double introduction, it has a double conclusion. So we'll consider each section of the book in turn tonight. Now, I don't have slides to walk us through, but, it's, but the outline is on the back of your bulletin. And so, we are, so first, uh, we can see that there is a double introduction from verse 1 of chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. Now, the first introduction runs through chapter 2, verse 5, where, uh, he is, where the author is really introducing the story of the book of Judges. He begins by citing the death of Joshua, which raises the question for the uninformed reader, who was Joshua? If that's the way to start, you don't know who he is. You're like, well, who's that guy? Well, Joshua was uh, the one, of course, who had headed headed up the initial conquest of the land of Canaan, uh, which is recorded in uh, the book of Joshua. There's his name. Uh, Joshua, he had been Moses' assistant, And he had been one of the spies who had spied out the land originally and one of the only two who had been faithful. Um, But uh, but but Joshua connects us, of course, back to Moses then. Moses, who was the servant of God through whom he freed the Hebrews from slavery and led them through the wilderness for an entire generation. And and so all of this from, from... from the moment here, a cited of Joshua's death in the book of Judges, in verse 1, uh, to the exploits of Moses and the marvelous wonders of God in Egypt and in the wilderness was all part and parcel of the promises that God had made to a man named Abraham back in Genesis 15, where he had made a covenant with him. He said there, back in Genesis 15, that, his, that Abraham's descendants would be enslaved in Egypt. That he, but that he would deliver them, and that he would give this land under Abraham's feet to his descendants. Joshua had led the initial strike into Canaan and did kind of a, a lightning attack over the land, uh, but the land was still not secure, especially in the southern region. Israel now needed to follow through and truly take the land completely. And before he died, Joshua told the people that they must remain faithful to the Lord above all. Because the Lord has been faithful to them. None of his promises have fallen to the ground, he says. And so you must choose this day whom you will serve. Moses had also, by this point, given them the law. The law that commanded the people to be careful not to follow the practices of the Canaanites. When they came into the land, practices of the Canaanites, were, which were extremely wicked, about which you can read in Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 14, and Leviticus 18, verses 6 through 23. It goes through a whole list 
And they use the word naked a lot. Uh, they would be t- but they would be tempted not to, to not listen to God. They would be tempted to compromise with the inhabiting nations, with their practices and their people. Above all, Israel was to remember that they were not receiving the land because they were more worthy than the Canaanites. He, God makes this explicitly clear in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. I'm actually gonna, I'll read this for you. Here's what he says. Now, imagine you know, that you're an Israelite. You've been brought out of Egypt. You've, you grew up in the desert. You're on the plains of Moab getting ready to go into the promised land. Moses is up there giving his final sermon, giving you the law before you go in. And here's what he says. He says, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust the Canaanites out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me to in to possess the land. Whereas it was because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Right? He's saying it's not your righteousness, it's their wickedness. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart. It's like, in case you didn't get it, I'm going to say it again. Uh, um, uh, It's not because of those things that you're going to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God is driving them out before you that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because of their wickedness, God's justice, and the fulfillment of God's promises. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Moses was not good at pep talks, right? But he was honest because he spoke the word of the Lord. And so God is being gracious towards Israel, even as he uses them as instruments of judgment against the nations living in Canaan. Uh, and then, and so we move from that first introduction and uh, into uh, Israel begins to take the land. Things go well at first, uh, but then uh, they mess up and they fail to take the land. By They don't even get out of chapter one before they hit the end. You're like, well, this that's pretty par for the course when you're reading the Bible, right? Genesis, you're like chapter one, two, then three. You know, it's like it doesn't get very far before sin comes in the mix. And, and so then we move into the second introduction, which actually introduces the problem of the book. In chapter two, verse six, versus chapter three, verse six. Now, modern audiences have a whole list of problems with the book of Judges, uh, from not knowing the geography, number one, uh, to apparent conflicts in the text, uh, um, contra- apparent contradictions uh, in the text, uh, and especially to moral repulsion at the idea of Israel basically wiping out certain portions of Canaan, and at the very least even dispossessing them from their homes. Now we're going to address all of these in this series, but the second chapter introduces the actual problem that drives the heart of the book which is Israel's disobedience to the Lord, particularly in their constant idolatry. In their constant idolatry. And, uh, and, and, this is, and so there's a pattern that, that is described in chapter 2, verses 11 through 23, where Israel would sin grievously, they would worship other gods, and violate God's laws in many different ways. That's step one. Step two is God would send an enemy nation in there to oppress them and and he would cause Israel to lose in battle. 
and be subject to these enemy peoples. That's step two. Step three is the people would then cry out in their pain and repent. And they would repent and, and, and say, we're going to do it right this time. And God, and that's step three. And then step four, God would have pity on his people. And he would raise up judges to deliver them from the enemy. And they would do so. And then after the deliverance of the people, they would not listen to the judges. And they, and they would in time again turn away from God, delving deeper and deeper into sin. And it just becomes this cycle. It goes around and around and around. And it's actually kind of, a, kind of, a, kind of like a, a whirlpool that kind of goes like this. It goes, it's a downward spiral into darkness and depravity. Because uh, this is the, and so things just get worse and worse. Uh, and, and the deliverances that are required become greater and greater to the point where the final judge, Samson, has to give his own life at the end. And, and even, but even by then, the judges have gotten worse over time. The problem becomes crystallized in the conclusion, and we'll come to that, but there's this sin cycle that spirals down and down and down. Uh, but before we get there into the, into the actual problem that the book presents and crystallizes for us at the very end, uh, we, need to, uh, we, we need to meet the judges in chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through chapter 16, verse 31, which is the bulk, of course, of the book. Um, now, uh, who, were, who were the judges? For us, modern times, we think of judges in a court or judges in a talent competition. You know, we think of judges who do that. Uh, well, these, these, are, these, are, these are 12 judges that are cited in the book. There's six major judges and six minor judges. The minor judges are mentioned almost in passing. Shamgar, Tola, Jair, Ibsen, Ilan, and Abdon. And uh, the major judges uh, have some familiar names to us. To us, Othniel, Ehud, uh, Deborah, and, and Barak, in parentheses, uh, Gideon, uh, Jephthah, and Samson. Uh, now, there's one odd duck named Abimelech who uh, is, is generally understood to be an anti-judge, and he'll be an interesting character when we get to him. But the judges uh, are so named because of what they do. They're called judges because they judge. They exercise a judicial capacity in Israel, um, but they also acted as military leaders for the nation. It's not unlike the earliest days of the Roman Empire uh, when, and this is before the empire got into Roman Empire, and, uh, and so when there was a crisis, uh, the people would elect a dictator. And you're like, you elect a dictator? Yeah, they would elect a dictator. They would basically give him all the power. He had dictatorial power. He could do anything he wanted uh, because all, what, all they need required him to do was to manage the crisis, which usually involved defeating some enemy that had invaded the land. And so one of the most famous of these was a man named Cincinnatus, uh, who after winning the battle... Uh, against the enemy was so popular that he could have continued and turned his his rule into a kingship, but instead he retired uh, to his estate, and and which only increased his fame and and lore uh, amongst the Romans. Uh, when George Washington did something similar uh, after two terms in office, when they said, "Look, you can be king, just just go for it," and he denied himself. And uh, can you believe it? A politician denying himself. Who'd have thought that? All right, so. Um, he denied himself a third term and then and retired for the sake of the nation, and they called him America's Cincinnatus. And they even named a city after him. Can you guess which one? 
Yeah, so, but Cincinnati is actually named after George Washington through you know, via Roman history. <laughs> so, see, history is fun. All right. But we are not given the teaching and instruction or even the judicial exploits of the judges. You do see some of that with Samuel later because he is considered the final judge, the last seer. But he was also a prophet. But what is recorded for us are the deliverances the judges bring. And that's it really should be how we primar- primarily see the judges is what, they, is what is presented to us. They were deliverers or the people of God. There is a great variety of deliverances uh, that, that they perform, uh, and, but they all include warfare of some kind or another. Some are straightforward leaders, some are sneaky assassins, some are cowardly, some are prideful, uh, some do miraculous things, some don't do miraculous things, uh, but uh, in a word, the judges are messy. They don't just fit a, a nice cookie-cutter pattern for uh, the office. Now, one difficulty of this book is that the order of the book of Judges is, is perhaps not strictly chronological. Um, and so this is uh, even true with the first two chapters of the book of Judges, where it says after the death of Joshua in chapter 1, and then chapter 2, it says, and so Joshua did this. And you're like, wait, I thought he died. Wait, what's going on here? All right. And again, this is the apparent contradictions. We'll, we'll get to those very quickly as we get into it. This, but this shouldn't disturb us because, um, again, there's two introductions. So they're accomplishing different purposes. It's not saying this happened and then right after this, this happened. We get thrown off because of the sequence of numbers. But remember, chapter numbers were added later after the scriptures. Chapter numbers were added about a thousand, uh, about year a thousand, roughly AD one thousand, uh, and then uh, the 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 this verse numbers uh, were added about five hundred years ago. Okay, so so those were not in the original text. So let's not get caught up on that. Uh, but also, this shouldn't disturb us because the Book of Genesis has two introductions. So it's not unusual for an ancient text to have multiple introductions. The question is, what purpose uh, is uh, is it trying to achieve? Also, the not strictly chronological ordering of uh, the book of Judges should not uh, uh, you know, cause us any panic because we also know uh, that the Gospels, while they, uh, while they follow a basic chronology of Christ's ministry that begins and ends in his death, and res- his death you know, crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, uh, we do know that the Gospel writers are sometimes a little free in terms of where they place certain things because they have certain purposes depending on what audience they were writing to. And so sometimes they organize things thematically or they're organizing a purpose. It doesn't mean those things didn't happen. It just means that ancient writers are not like modern biography. They, they're not simply going, okay, we need to have a strict historical timeline that goes from this time to this time and where we, where we you know. So um, there's a famous uh, uh, biographer who just put out a book on uh, Winston Churchill and so what he said was, he said, I um, basically had a book's worth of information for every year that Winston Churchill lived. A book's worth of information. And then I consolidated that, that down, and in a nine months I wrote, uh, you know, he wrote over like 800 pages. Um, you know, just summarizing <laughs> uh, Churchill's life. And so he did that, so he, he said, if, if, if Churchill did something on any day, he said, I had a note on it of his life. Can you imagine that? And so, and so then he, and so he writes that out. So he spent about, uh, he spent uh, years researching this, and then he took about nine months to kind of crumb. Uh, but he had different purposes in mind. And so just, these are not simply historical biographers writing history texts like a modern historian. 
Um, they also have other purposes in mind. It do, don't undermine the historicity that these things happened, but it highlights the fact that it highlights the fact that the, these are writers of scripture who have a concern not only for the truth of history, but also for the moral and theological aspects of God's past dealings with his people, and that they actually are making a point in how they craft their narrative, and they, and they drive home uh, something for us, for the audience as we read it. And so this brings us to a question, which is, how do we understand the work of Judges? Because this is, this is hotly debated. Um, uh, now, teach, because teaching in the book of Judges is really, honestly, all over the place. It is really all over the place. Um, there are isolated sermons and Bible studies that encourage us to have faith like Gideon, to throw that fleece out there, whatever that means, all right, um, or to do mighty things like Samson, okay, except for his dealings with women. Don't do that, all right, uh, all right, but have faith like Samson with the jawbone of a donkey, you know. Uh, modern scholarship has largely been uh, very negative about the character of the judges, uh, almost reveling in their faults and sins. What is Samson's deal with women? Did Jephthah really sacrifice his own daughter when he came home from battle? Why is Barak such a wuss? Right? Are we supposed to celebrate and sing songs about uh, the ladies stabbing guys in the head with a tent stake? All right? Thankfully, we have this little thing called the New Testament that helps us to understand overall how we're supposed to view the judges. We read the passage at the beginning, right? What more shall I say? I'll bring it up again here. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mounts of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. I mean, these, these are men along with, uh, um, and, and one woman at least, uh, and and. Along with the persecuted and the martyrs that are mentioned here, who the author of Hebrews says, the world was not worthy. At the very least, we need to see the judges as servants of God who by faith did amazing things for his people. They did so by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, who operated differently than he does now this side of Pentecost. But the judges were men and women of faith, and God was glorified by their labors. But they were also, many of them, not all of them, but many of them were deeply flawed. And the book of Judges seems to organize the judges almost from a best to worst catalog. But that's not all the author of Hebrews says about the judges. He says, in, uh, he says there in 1139, uh, right at the very end here, the at the bottom here, he says, all of these, Though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Meaning the judges were deliverers. They delivered the people of God from their oppressors. But the faults of the judges highlighted the need for a greater deliverer than they. The people of God cannot save themselves. That much is clear from the book of Judges. And we'll come back to that in a moment. And so this brings us to the conclusion of the book, which, as I said, is a double conclusion, beginning in chapter 17 and, and through the end of the book in chapter 21, verse 25. And the double conclusion is one that I would say is, is characterized by darkness and light, and there's a lot of darkness. The darkness is simply that anarchy and chaos reigns in Israel, is what we are meant to see there. 
rampant idolatry, horrific violence and sexual immorality, and civil war characterize the end of the book of Judges. The judges are nowhere to be found after the death of Samson. And without them, idolatry takes root. The Benjaminites of Gibeah commit a horrible atrocity. And basically all chaos breaks loose and all the solutions that they come to to solve the problems are bad ones. The final verse of the book reveals the problem, the true problem. It's kind of one of those kind of surprise almost reveals because it takes to the end to really get to what is going on here. And it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is the fourth time that line is repeated in the last four chapters of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no judge, and more importantly, there was no king to rule the people. They had never had a human king. They were supposed to have God as their king. But there was a king coming because there were rules in the book of Deuteronomy governing the rule of kings. We did need a king who was human and divine. But in the absence of such a king, moral moral relativism became the call for the day. And even today we look around and Doing what is right in your own eyes is largely encouraged, unless I don't like what you're doing. (laughs) We don't have a standard. So what is the message of this very dark book? Well, this is where the light comes in. Well, the message is, without a king, all we have is darkness. We need the light. We need the king. We need the true king of Israel. And in time, a king would come. It would come for the people, of course, in the form of Saul, which is a bit of a misfire, uh, who would fail and show them the kind of king they don't need, which is one that's tall and handsome and looks like a king. They need a guy who is, who is a man after God's own heart. They need a guy with the heart of a shepherd. And so David becomes king, the best king Israel ever had. He is, you know, we talk about, you know, it's the... Um, uh, you know, growing up, they talked about, you know, he's the Michael Jordan of whatever. You know, now it's like the LeBron James or whatever. You know, it's like there's someone's name who becomes associated with a particular view of excellence such that, like, it's the best of the best, right? That is the name of David in the Old Testament for kingship. Whenever, whenever, when you go read the book of Chronicles, the book, the chron- the book of Chronicles, the, the guy who wrote Chronicles loves to do this. He'll take every king after David gets compared to David, Right? Don't you love when you come into a job and they go, well, that's not what the last person did. And they were really good. <laughs> right? It's like, well, that's, that's what happened. They go, they did not honor the Lord as David had done. Right? But they went off and they were idolatrous. You know, they did not do this as David had done. So David became the, 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 the name of excellence, the, the very ideal of a king. And indeed, the prophecies foretold of the son of David who would come and rule not just Israel but the world. And so the good news of the book of Judges, the gospel according to the book of Judges you could say, is that there is one to come who will bring light into the darkness. The gospel of John tells us that the light has come into the world in Jesus Christ. He is the light of men who has shown in our very hearts to take us 
from how we are as an idolatrous and stubborn people to make us into his citizens, his saints, and his very family. So the book of Judges may be a hard book, but honestly, it may be the most honest book about the world in which we live. The world in which we live is a very dark place. People try to hide behind TV screens and, you know, glowing screens, but there's a lot of darkness going on out in the world right now. Life can get real dark. It can be real violent, as much of our own city knows. And we are taught that even in the darkness, we are called to worship our God as we await deliverance. Even more, we are directed to turn our eyes to our true king, to repent of our own hard-hearted and idolatrous ways, to submit to him, and to order our lives according to his commands. I mean, just in the Great Commission, I love it, make disciples. Let me focus on make disciples, as Jesus says. He says, baptizing them, great, and teach them, great. I'll be happy to instruct them. No, I teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's another thing, right? It's one thing to teach them. It's another thing to teach someone to obey. In the evil of their idolatry, Israel lost their way. They lost the truth of God's word and his commands. And in doing so, they lost their lives in death and sorrow and oppression. But our King Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Let us trust and follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book, Lord, that is oftentimes confusing and presses us to ask hard questions, but good questions, deep questions, pressing questions, to examine ourselves about the own darkness that we embrace in our hearts, the own, our own idolatrous ways, the excuses that we make for our own sinfulness, and we justify how then we do what is right in our own eyes, and we justify ourselves. So, Father, we pray as David did in Psalm 139, and we ask for you to search us, and to reveal to us any way in our lives that is grievous to you. That you would reveal to us the things which we say and do and think that grieve your spirit. And that Christ's rule would be made even more manifest in our hearts and lives. That we may walk in holiness and joy in obedience. As we seek to live and to shine in the darkness as Christ has called us, commanded us, and as his spirit fills us and enables us to do. And we pray this all in Jesus' wonderful and holy name.